Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and Gem, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go. Hello. Welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. I'm your host, James Mackey. Really excited for today's episode. We are joined by Laura Janjuli. Laura, thank you for joining me today on the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, we're pumped to have you here. We have a lot of great topics outlined for our audience today. I would love to go into your background before we jump into it. I want folks to understand your perspective. So if you could share a little bit about uh, the company that you work for, um, your role within the company, maybe <clears throat> how large the organization is, uh, just so folks can kind of understand your point of impact. And, and when you speak to the topics, they kind of know where you're coming from, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so as you said, Laura and Julie, I'm the currently the Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Caliber Systems Incorporated. We're a mid-sized government contractor located in Alexandria, Virginia, specializing in IT um, and uh, data manage our IT consulting and, um, and management consulting, primarily in Department of Defense, but also have uh, clients throughout uh, the government. I've been at Caliber for almost 20 years. So uh, I joined Caliber as a benefits specialist, actually, and worked my way up over the years. And in fact, at several points in my career, Caliber created a position for me because they knew that I wanted more, I could do more. And quite honestly, I joined the company right at that growth period. So as the company grew, I kind of grew with it. Um, in some cases, I was the first HR manager that they had. Um, I'm the first uh, CHRO that they've had. Um, so it's been a it's been an incredible ride. And so when I joined the company almost 20 years ago, we only had about 300 employees and we're now sitting at about 750 employees worldwide. Um, so we have employees in the U.S. and in Canada. We have them um, in Korea, in Germany, in um, South Korea, Kwajalein Atoll, Kuwait and Afghanistan. Um, we also had employees at one point um, supporting our troops during the war on terror. So we've worked in and out of war zones. Uh, so it's been it's been an incredible ride. And, and uh, as I said, really started off in benefits, worked my way up through benefits into HR management um, and now oversee all of HR at umbrella at Caliber, which not only includes all the verticals you would think of for HR, but also includes talent acquisition, corporate security um, and payroll. It's quite a lot. It's really impressive. It's, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and the progression over the years. So that's uh, I know there's a, a ton of value that you'll be able to, to share with our executive audience. And I hope everybody's taking notes uh, because I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about can help guide talent strategy holistically for uh, growth stage, uh, mid-sized organizations, international organizations, all really, really cool stuff. So I, I think uh, let's let's dive in. We wanted to, to really talk about from an executive perspective. Um I would love to learn from you. I mean, your background is coming up through HR, taking on C-level position, overseeing talent acquisition as well. I And I don't know if that's when you started overseeing talent acquisition, if it was earlier on, but I would love to to learn from you what that like initial transition was to expanding your scope from uh, overseeing people uh, in HR to all-encompassing the talent acquisition, so essentially the full life cycle of candidate to employee journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that? what that journey was like for you? 
Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So as soon as I moved into HR management at Caliber, I began overseeing talent acquisition. Um, that was really just a byproduct of the size of, of the company, right? We didn't, we weren't large enough to break off recruiting at the time. So it just fell under HR. In fact, it wasn't even its own um, code, but you know, it was a part of human resources. We had at the time one full-time recruiter and one HR assistant. Um, and so really have grown the organization. Now we have a director of talent acquisition. We have four full-time recruiters, um, you know, and so um, it's just been, you know, it's been really interesting to, to grow the talent acquisition as the company has grown, right? So in the very beginning, it was really transactional. I kind of described it as order takers, right? So the the hiring managers or or the operations side of the house would tell our recruiter what they needed and he or she would just go out and fill that. There was no real proactive recruiting happening. You know, this was back in the good old days where we put ads in the newspaper, you know? Um, So, you know, our largest, our largest media outlet was the Washington Post at the time, you know? Um, and so it's been fun to watch that evolution as well, right? So now, as you know, I mean, nothing's in print, right? So now it's everything is online. It's about who do you know, who are you, you know, reaching out to, what pipeline are you creating, how are you proactively uh, marketing your company, what's that ROI for candidates and employees? And so um, I've been real active with our recruiting team about how do you build that? What is our brand strategy? What is our reputation in the market? How do we create one? How do we maintain it? How do we protect it? And then quite frankly, how do we shamelessly advertise it, right? So that when our recruiters reach out to candidates, they've overcome perhaps that first obstacle of they don't even know who we are when they when, when they when, when they get that phone call from our recruiter. So, and all of that has been done with having absolutely no zero zip zilch recruiting background. Yeah, that's incredible. So it's it's really... It seems like at the at the high level, a lot of what you're doing is is almost like branding and like positioning. Like, how do we make sure that, of course, like how are we getting in front of the right people, but like kind of how are we positioning ourselves like the almost like employee value proposition and making sure that your reputation is in good standing in relation to maybe competitors on on the market to provide this kind of like that compelling value prop so that you have great talent kind of funneling through. Would you say is that? That was kind of like my takeaway. Is that, would you say your primary kind of point of impact from a TA yeah. or did I miss that? Yeah, no, you, you, uh, you nailed it. I mean, I would say you're right. You know, um, I've tried to really instill in our recruiters that uh, even if that candidate isn't going to become our employee, let's make them a brand ambassador, right? Cause you don't know who they're talking to. You don't know who they know. You don't know, especially in the GovCon world, it's smaller than you think. Right. You know, we may win a contract that they're on in a year or two or they may lose you know, the work that they're on. and might come back to revisit us. And so, like I said, even if they're not going to join us today, have them be a brand ambassador to help spread the word and maybe join us down the line. Yeah, for sure. So I'm from a, like a, a data flow kind of reporting perspective. What's like the flow? Like how how often are you meeting with town acquisition? What data points are they presenting to you how do you go about executing on on your kind of point of impact to make sure like you have the visibility that you need to make sure things are on track yeah so a couple of years ago our um data 
team created a dashboard, right? So at any point in time, I can go on to the executive dashboard and I can look and see, you know, where are we with open positions, time to fill, how many uh, resumes have been routed, how many interviews have been scheduled, right? So I, I can look at all of those kind of high level metrics, but to your point, really to kind of dig in and find out, okay, if something's been open for a while, why, what are we doing? Um, so I meet with my director of talent acquisition on a weekly basis, obviously more so if we need to, but there's a, a standing weekly meeting um, where we go over all of that. What are you doing? You know, Do you have any pain points? Anything I can help you with? Is there anything from executive level? I need to go talk to someone else in the company, right? Uh, from the recruiting standpoint, um, you know, I, I interact with the recruiters as they need it or as my director of talent acquisition wants me to come in. Now, that being said, I'm speaking from a very formal basis. On an informal basis, I'm speaking with just about everybody on my team, you know, every couple of weeks, you know, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Anything I can help you with? You know, that that kind of stuff. Um, but really looking at, like I said, you know, how many open positions do we have? How long have they been open? As a government contractor, we have fully funded positions and what we call unfunded positions. Fully funded positions are what you think of, right? Like we we want a contract and we're going to fill so many seats and we're, we're getting revenue from, from those seats, right? So we're keeping track of how much revenue are we losing on a daily basis by having this position open versus unfunded is if we found a candidate and the client liked them, they would then add that position to our contract. So maybe we maybe we budgeted to grow on the contract, but at the same time, if we don't fill the position, there isn't a direct impact to the corporate budget, right? And so there's been a lot of education with recruiting along those lines, right? Of, you know, my 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 big um, pep talk, if you will, to recruiting a couple of years ago was, you know, if caliber isn't going to make its numbers, then let's not lay that at recruiting speed, right? So let's fill all the positions that we can fill. And if that means bringing in outside sources, then let's not be, you know, so, so stubborn to not ask for help when we need it, right? Let's do it thoughtfully so that we can control the OPEX budget, um, but when required, let's bring in a headhunter. Let's bring in outside resources. If you need a subscription to a different database or something, raise your hand, right? You know, I don't know what you need until you tell me. Yeah, I think it's like one of the critical things there is, is you talked about billable roles and the alignment between essentially revenue with HR and headcount planning. And when we think about budget for town acquisition, you really need to understand essentially the opportunity cost or how much revenue that you're losing. And I think too, it's like for folks out there that don't necessarily have billable roles, there's still very tight parallel uh, between sales hires, for instance, and understand the opportunity cost of keeping sales positions open. Uh, and, and also understanding the the cost of the ramp time that's yeah. created and and finding ways to minimize ramp and accelerate that. So you can uh, essentially get a better return on investment for mm -hmm. sales talent. So, you know, if you're a, a people leader, uh, make sure to have that alignment with revenue. If you're a, a CEO, make sure that <laughs> revenue teams and, and HR are aligned. And of course, if you have billable roles, there's almost like even a, a higher incentive. But I think it's it's there's a opportunity cost and, and usually a way to measure, um, mm -hmm. you know, for other roles in the, in the organization too that are not billable. And I think sometimes folks get caught up in like thinking like, well, is there an exact science? And, you know, maybe in some cases it's, it can be a, a little bit more challenging, but you can still like, to the extent that you understand the strategic direction of the organization, uh, some of the North Star metrics, whether it's like revenue growth or whatever else. And then if you're able to tie it back to like on a department level, like 
you know, the value that that team's bringing to the table. I think like a big part of a challenge can be sometimes for HR talent folks is, is getting appropriate budget and resources. And I think that like what you're mentioning is a critical part of being able to get, um, you know, the right funding. I mean, we had Daniel Chait, I was telling you before the show, uh, CEO of Greenhouse. And one of the things that he talked about was in the earlier days, he presented a quote to a customer going to charge him like $15,000 a year for his applicant tracking system. And like the HR leader, people leader was just like 15,000, like we're paying three grand. Yeah. And Daniel was like, <laughs> he was like, all right. So, you know, you said a company X has XYZ goals, right? Mm-hmm. And so he was, he was basically like, here is the value creation of getting the right people in your organization. And here is the potential opportunity cost of keeping these roles open or not being able to do so. It's like, you don't have like, in this case, like the, the, the HR leader was thinking like, well, this is like a, you know, a 10 K difference or a 12 K difference. And dad was like, you don't have a $12,000 problem. You have a hundred million dollar problem. Right. And so, and, and, and she probably, or he or she probably didn't even know that. Right. Because if you have a $3,000 system, you're getting $3,000 data. Right. And you don't even know what you don't know. Right. And it's like, that's why having the right tool, the right people, the right process, the right technology and mm-hmm. HR and talent acquisition is really critical. And I think often it's kind of seen as this cost center, but I think executives out there, you have to make sure, are you really identifying uh, how much value creation is created by making your critical hires and the opportunity cost of things like bad hires or keeping rules open and putting together a formula, like you're not going to get it down to the dollar, but companies seem to significantly underestimate what can go wrong by not making the right investments and, and how much that's actually going to cost them in growth. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think they also um, undervalue the role that the recruiter plays in that process, right? So we had that challenge at Caliber for a while that, you know, um, a little bit like the $3,000 platform gets you $3,000 results, right? We There was some real pushback on really paying a premium for recruiters. And so I had to make that same business case that you just described of, okay, you know, there's nothing wrong with the recruiters that we have, but if you want a recruiter that's going to fill a position in X number of days and understands the the strategic impact to having open positions and they've got, you know, I'm going to date myself a Rolodex, right, (laughs) of, you know, of candidates and they know who to go talk to, that person isn't getting paid $55,000 a year. Right. right. And so that's also a resource that you have to be willing to spend, right, and invest in and bring the right kind of recruiter into your roles. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the advantages, um, like from my point of impact at, at Secure Vision, we do talent solutions. So it's like contract recruiting and better recruiting and RPO. Mm-hmm. And we've partnered with over 150 companies over the past eight years. So we've been doing this a minute. And I will say that one of the biggest game changers, for my company, when we really started to grow and scale was when we changed up our pricing model for how we onboard recruiters. Mm-hmm. And we, like, as you said, right, the best folks out there, I don't care, like what specialization, they're going to be making more than 50 grand, like 55 grand. And, and like, you know, it's also, a lot, I think in a lot of recruiter roles, there was like this like concept of like a lower base and a higher bonus or commission plan. Mm-hmm. And so we flipped the model on the head and we would reach out to like top recruiters and say, Hey, look, we trust if we think you're the, you're the best at your company, we trust you to deliver results. We're going to give you all of your comp and guaranteed income. 
That's right. And we're going to like basically come work for us. We'll double your base. That's right. And we, as a result, were uh, able to recruit the the best folks in our industry. And it's, it's it was almost to the point where it like literally almost surprised me at the time, where it was like the caliber of people that we attracted. Like our team is literally stacked with A players. It's unlike yeah. any organization I'd worked for before in terms of the recruiting talent. It was just nuts how much, and then those people deliver incredible experiences for for customers internally across the board. So, I mean, you get what you pay for. Now, that's to not say that like you can pay a lot of money for someone and they're not. That doesn't mean that they're going to be good. <laughs> you of course yeah. need a structured hiring process, but right. yeah, I mean, people that are going to be top of their field are going to be they're going to make more money. Like, and and you the the value of having somebody that is really good creates so much leverage in your business. Yeah, yeah, it's worth it. And like you just said, I don't think people really truly understand the ripple effect it has throughout the organization, right? So like you said, it has an impact on on how quickly someone can hire. It has an impact on how quickly that person can either get in front of the client or the customer really start to have an impact, right? It, it also has a difference in how the, how the candidate now new employee comes into the organization. Do they do so in a very positive manner or are they already kind of soured because the whole recruiting the onboarding process was just, you know, it's a, a mess, right? So it really, it really sets the foundation for how the entire employee experience is going to go. Okay, so I, I have a question for you, right? So, yeah. like, obviously, the quality of the recruiters is really important. When you were hiring that director, I don't know if you promoted internally or hired externally. Mm-hmm. What makes a great director or head of TA or VP of TA? What skill set are you looking for for the person that's reporting into you? that is leading that talent acquisition function? Like what does good look like? Yeah. So I think it's a lot of what I already described. I need someone who understands that connection between recruiting and revenue, right? I need someone who's at that intersection of understanding that, that, you know, what they and their team does or doesn't do has a direct impact to another piece of the business being able to meet their goals and their metrics, right? And so then once you start with that baseline, then how do we achieve that, right? Is that through top-notch recruiters? Is that through, you know, high-flying platforms? Is that through brand management, right? And then under underpinned all of that with, for, for us at least, we don't make anything, right? I don't sell a widget. I sell the knowledge and skills of our employees. Right. So then again, this goes back to I have to have recruiters and a, and a director of talent that understands they've got to find the right person. They've got to they've got to hire for fit as well as competencies. Right. Um, and then, as I said, how do we set the stage and the foundation for that employee experience? And then, quite frankly, I know I'm giving you a really long answer. How do we also hold hiring managers accountable? Right. Because this is a this is a relationship. It's not all on the recruiter. Right. I think the recruiter probably shoulders a lot of that burden, but they don't shoulder all of it. And so that talent director, VP of talent's got to be able to manage all of that. Right. Um, and you know, and, and I I have taught my director the answer is not no, the answer is yes and right. So yes, and I'm gonna need two more people, or yes, <laughs> and I'm gonna need fifty thousand dollars to get that done, right? So that people understand, yeah, we can do. Well, we can do all of that. I just can't do it at status quo, right? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I I do think that another disconnect at maybe a CEO level or just a C level for folks that aren't in HR or talent acquisition or don't have a background 
really being too involved is that it's really, really truly is like hiring employee experience, candidate experience, getting results in both sides. It is, it requires a people first culture and buy-in from the entire organization and alignment from the entire organization. I think a lot of the times when people hear people first culture, they're like thinking it's like this loose, like employee experience that doesn't have this direct uh, path to achieving North Star metrics. But it's, it's, there are actual, like, there are so many things that have to be executed and they start with the understanding of being people first. Like, literally, nothing is created. Nothing in the history of humanity has ever been created without recruiting a great team of people to accomplish a goal. It's fundamental to everything. It starts with the founder of the company. It's the very first thing a founder needs to do. Yeah. People build products, services, everything. It's the core of everything. And it has to be a core part of the culture, even when companies start to scale. And I think so one of the big pieces of advice I give, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I think executive leaders, hiring managers, it should be part of their performance. Achieving their headcount targets is actually part of how their performance is measured because we need buy-in from them too. A recruiter can be doing, you can have a great recruiter, but if you don't have the buy-in from a hiring manager or they're not following best practices, then you're not going to necessarily get great results. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we have that on our balance scorecard, right? So to your point, all leaders have a headcount metric. And so, um, you know, admittedly, that's a little bit more of a revenue number, right? Because to to your point earlier, right, if, if a position is open and it's billable, and what does that mean to them and the impact it has? But there is still an HR component to that. And then, and then also on the BSC is how do you work with your teammates, right? And so teammates can mean, is that HR? Is that recruiting? Is that is that contracts and procurement? Right. You know, so it's not just about can you go out and sell? It's can you also work with those that either have to implement and live with the deal that you struck with someone, right? You know, and then and how are you working with everyone in the company? It's not just about being forward-facing. It's also how are you working with the team that's left back at headquarters? Yeah, it's um I, I think that this is like the point that I could drive home, if there's just like one point, um, and I, I loved it how you, when you were talking about like hiring a TA leader, it's like, do they truly understand the impact that they have on the organization's North Star metrics and tying it back to, to revenue and these things? And I think in some cases, we, I've seen a level of sophistication on the revenue side that is not necessarily parallel to what I've seen on the, on the people side. Um, and not always, but I just think that like, and I think some of it has to do with like budgets and like maybe folks not understanding truly the value that are not on the HR people side where they're just like, oh, this is just like, you know, we, we have to focus on filling these roles, but really, you know, sales is where, you know, all of our attention needs to be. But again, it's like people are the core, like nothing great has ever been accomplished without a great team of people doing it. And we need to increase the budget that we have for our the headcount uh, to build up better process and technology to be able to execute on any other part of the business that we need to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and not only from talent acquisition, but also, you know, bleeding over into HR. You know, when I meet with my whole team, I tell them over and over again, right, that we can't forget the value of caliber goes down to zero every single night. And it only returns the next day when every single employee chooses to come back to work. And damn, they make- I love that. Right. And they make that choice every day and they make that choice every day by how we 
interact with them, how we engage with them. And so, you know, as you were saying earlier, to me, that's the basis of a people first culture, right? If we, everything that we're doing is about how do I get the employee to come back tomorrow? And that doesn't mean that to your, to your point, it doesn't mean that it's, there's no rules and that everyone gets what they want and everyone is happy, right? You know, but it does mean that we're treating people consistently, fairly, that we have benefits that meet people where they are, that we're providing for them, right? And that we're doing everything we can every day to have them make that choice tomorrow to come back to work. For sure. I, I really love that. You've said some really, really impactful things. I, I really do hope that leaders tuning in are dropping this in their Slack channels. Um, and because there's a lot of stuff here that can guide talent strategy, I, I think let's, so let's, this is a good time to transition more into the HR side, employee engagement. Like, I think one of the challenges can be, how do you pick like benefits and things that are going to be most impactful, um, keeping a pulse on what people want in the marketplace. What's that from your point of impact? How do you ensure you're getting the right feedback loop, making sure that your billable employees as well as uh, back office are getting the benefits that are going to be compelling to keep them checking kind of employee engagement? Like, I guess like just like what are the different things you're monitoring on the employee side and then how do you monitor it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So we have a lot of communication channels at Caliber and we always have. And so... We our employees to begin with are not shy about telling us what they like and what they don't like, right? I mean, um, I know you've done your homework. We're an employee-owned company, and so um, I think there's a little bit of communication freedom, if you will, in that employee-owned company, right? So there's a, there's a, a freedom to speak your mind because you are an owner of the company. Um, so as I said, we have a lot of, of communication and feedback loops and mechanisms and, and always have. So we do intentionally reach out to our employees and focus groups and say, hey, you know, well, where do we have gaps? You know, where are we meeting your needs? Um, on a more individual basis, the HR director and I meet with every new employee within their first 90 days of joining Caliber. And, and that's one of the questions I ask them. Hey, how was onboarding for your benefits? Um, was it what you expected? Was it what was described to you in your recruiting process, right? Um, How easy was it to enroll in your benefits? Did you get your card on time? Do you have any questions about the network or the providers, right? So we're getting feedback from new employees. Same thing about exiting employees. We ask them the same questions, right? Did benefits play a role in your decision? Did you have any, um, you know, gaps in care, that kind of thing? And then, of course, we do an annual survey every year for all of our employees where we ask very similar questions about benefits. And then, as I said, we have employees who just aren't shy to tell us Um, what they want and where they need things. And then, of course, we have outside tools. We have a benefit broker that we've had for many years that comes back and tells us what's happening in the market. My HR director and I are both, um, you know, members of of, you know, the local SHRM and the national SHRM and GovCon, you know, committees and, and networks and all of that, where we're getting constant feedback about what other people are doing or the challenges that they're seeing. Um, and then we honestly just sort of mash all of that up together, right? In fact, I just had a call with my HR director earlier today to talk about that, that it's only July, but let's start thinking about what does open enrollment look like this year? Have there been any, uh, you know, any data points through the last six months that we really need to think about as we're moving into negotiating what 2024 benefits look like, right? You know, especially from a DEI lens, right? Do we have any huge gaps in care for certain groups of our population? And let's start looking at that now so that we can not necessarily, um, you know, we can't provide everything to everyone, 
right? But um, let's start looking, let's start talking and having those conversations and at least acknowledge where we might have an opportunity to do better. Yeah, I I, I would love to, to slow down the DEI piece. And, you know, one of the things we talked about is how can people, organizations help folks make career transitions from underserved communities? I, I would love to get into how you how you can really execute on on that goal and maybe companies that feel like they're they want to do more but they're not really sure how to make the investment in such a way that they're going to really be able to get a return and making sure at the same time too that they're getting folks in the seat that can deliver on on the expectations of the role right in a career uh, transition uh, capacity because there's I think maybe additional resources that need to be made from process onboarding. So sure. I, I'm just like, how do you how do you think about that? How do you structure that initiative to actually be able to uh, one accomplish the mission of uh, getting uh, more career transitioners in place from underserved communities, and two, how do you ensure that um, they're in a position to execute on the roles that you're onboarding them for? Yeah. So, um, you know, I tell my talent acquisition team all the time that equal access, uh, equal opportunity only begins with equal access. Right. And so how do we ensure that everyone has an opportunity to apply and be considered for the position? And so a lot of that is outreach. Right. So, you know, we're not going to have a diverse candidate if we don't have a diverse candidate pool. And so how do we widen the net? How do we increase the the, um, out, you know, the um opportunity to to attract diverse candidates, right? We also need to be mindful of what does the recruiting panel look like, right? We know that representation matters. We know that if a candidate looks at the interviewers and doesn't see themselves reflected back, that there's an opportunity there for us to do better. We know that there are some inherent or unconscious biases within certain populations, right? And so how do we remove all those barriers where we can? Um, And that starts with how do we reach out and network with diverse hiring um, uh, companies, right, with different candidate pools, with different um, industry networks. Um, And then, as I said, how do we then ensure that when we have the diverse candidates that come in, that they're getting an equal opportunity? Um, And then, to your point, once they're in, how do we ensure that they feel a sense of inclusion, a sense of belonging? How do we make sure that it is a it is a continual evolutionary process that you know we're not just doing this one and done? That we're committed to really having a diverse employee population and diverse and and not just from a race and ethnicity standpoint, but from from a neurodiversity standpoint, from a from a, um, a lifestyle orientation standpoint, right? That we know that everyone in the room makes it better. Um, and that that's also something I picked up on many, many years ago that, you know, instead of looking around and asking who is in the room, ask who's not. Yeah. Who's, who's not represented in this conversation. And then that's what we need to go out and do. Did, did, did I answer your question? Yeah, that's, it's a very practical way to think about it. Yeah. Who's not. I mean, I don't know why this I thought of the like a parallel on a revenue side. Like one of my revenue advisors says you don't have to worry about the objections in the room. You have to worry about the objections that aren't in the room <laughs> that aren't being brought up. Right. Um, I don't know. It's a totally different topic, but it's just like the parallel. Like I think mm-hmm. that there's probably a, a lot of parallels and different applications of that thought process, which yeah. I find really interesting. That's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. I you know, so we we mental health, I think, is kind of a good transition from where what we just discussed. Of course, like COVID craziness past few years has put mental health kind of at the forefront. I think that 
a lot of organizations are trying to do more here. I think that sometimes there's a, a little bit of a tug of war between what people teams uh, want to do or what employees want to see and kind of proving like if it's financially sustainable. Uh, there's concerns from C-level executives of doing too much. I think that there's still a lag when it comes to insurance companies and benefits and what they're willing to kind of provide, if anything. I think it's a really tough, it could be a really tough um, topic to execute on, get the right buy-in. Um, I And I've seen actually a fair amount of companies do so somewhat successfully and implement some pretty great programs. But I would love to just hear from you philosophically, like how you think about this, like what your kind of worldview is on this topic, and then how you've kind of gone about executing the change and getting the buy-in in order to, and what you actually did, right? Like to, to kind of help on, on this front, like, what are you, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, no, I would just echo everything you said, right? I think COVID brought it really to the forefront. I think that some companies are excelling at this. I think some companies are not. I think some companies are missing an opportunity to really help their employees and create that people first culture. Um, you know, throughout the entire pandemic, I I kind of had the same mantra over and over again that, you know, while we were all in the same storm, we were in very different boats. And, and I tried to explain to my team and to, and to the other C-level uh, C executives that what that meant is, you know, I might be able to take on more, right? You know, having my my then fourth grader do virtual school in the dining room wasn't that big of a stressor for me. I had a door that closed to my own private home office. I had, you know, high-speed broadband internet, right? You know, I had a spouse at home that could answer her when she was yelling that she couldn't get online if I was in a meeting, right? But someone else's boat may not have had all of those resources in it, right? And so having a child in the other room trying to learn school while they were trying to you know, be on a meeting and, and a supervisor is upset because their camera isn't on, right? And their camera's not on because they spent the first 45 minutes trying to get their kid logged into school, right? You know, and they didn't get a chance to take a shower, right? So, so how, how do we meet employees in the moment, right? Where they are? That doesn't mean that we don't hold them to expectations. It doesn't mean that they're not required to fulfill, you know, their roles, right? But understand that we have an opportunity here like never, never before to be flexible with our employees, right? To really um, to really identify and embrace their whole self. And so part of their whole self is mental health, right? And so um, you're right, benefits traditionally have had a big gap in care when it comes to this. They you know, only provide usually what's required by state. Um, you know, usually there's a, a number of visits that they're allowed to see, and sometimes that doesn't, you know, address the issue. And so we're working really hard with our with our benefits about how do we remove those barriers? And if we can't remove the barriers because of the relationship that we're in with our healthcare provider, then what are the services that we can lay over them? And one of the things that me and my HR director and our benefit specialist and one other HR generalist did was we took a mental health first aid. Um, course. And it's not designed for us to go in and save people, but it is designed for us to understand and recognize what are the stressors, how do people present, how do people from different socioeconomic and gender and race backgrounds present with different type of stressors and symptoms, what are the things that we can do, and then also, quite frankly, what are the 
um, you know, the tools and resources available in the community to get people to the right professional help? And when do we need to intervene immediately? And when do we need to back off? And, and that and that also gave us all a little bit of comfort of just that, right? I think we all worry, where's the line that we're overstepping? Especially in HR, we get phone calls from supervisors, employees, coworkers. They're worried about so-and-so, um, you know, or maybe so-and-so hasn't come to work for a day or two. And everyone's a little bit nervous about, well, I don't know, do I call them? Do I not, you know? This our team some tools about when do you step in, how do you step in, and then how do you bring in the right professional services if that's required. Um, and then we're also launching employee resource groups, right? We know that peer-to-peer communication is important, um, you know, really stressing that this isn't a replacement for professional help or professional services, um, but it is perhaps a safe space for someone to at least first acknowledge that they need help or to ask for help. Um, and it's also a place for people to come together um, and feel a sense of community that we know was lost during COVID. All right. So question, and we're coming up on time here, but <laughs> I um, ERGs, right? Employee resource groups. Mm-hmm. Um, executing on that is harder than I think a lot of organizations realize. And you need structure and oversight and to put in like just the right structure to where it's, it's really beneficial and it's, it's something that works for the employees and also works for the company, quite honestly. And so from an HR perspective, it can actually be somewhat complex and a heavier lift than I think a lot of people anticipate. So how do you go about executing on an ERG, ERG group that is within the parameters of what's helpful for the employees and something that works for the company? Do you have any advice on that? Um, yeah, I would say that we're still in the middle of that, right? We've launched several ERGs and I think that you nailed it spot on. It is so much more complicated than people think. Um, it isn't just a social club. Yes, there's a social aspect to it, right? But if you launch ERGs just so that certain clubs can hold certain cultural events throughout the year, you're really missing an opportunity, right? Um, and so we're, we're in the middle of, of launching those and figuring out what that means. What it means at Caliber is we've asked for a lead of every ERG. We've asked for an executive sponsor for every ERG. Um, you know, we've asked to have an outline of at least how many times are you going to meet throughout the year, right? HR is really heavily involved to help with resources, whether that's Mm -hmm. um, leveraging our vendors or um, leveraging our survey tools to find out what the participants want, right? Um, We're now kind of taking that next evolutionary step of what does it really mean, right? So how do we address perhaps barriers to progression, barriers to career development um, within this population of of employees, right? What matters to them? Um, And then how are they going to form what this looks like and what are the norms within this group? Because they're very different for each group, right? What might work for the veterans ERG might not work for the women's ERG and vice versa, right? And so, and also when is it appropriate to have allies in the meeting and when is it not appropriate to have allies in the meeting? Um, and so I wish I had a better answer for you. I would say stay tuned and, and you know, yeah. call me in a year and, and I'll tell you if, if, we, if we've solved that puzzle or not. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're working through it because you're right. It, it's very complicated. And um, if done incorrectly, I think it has um, a pretty negative effect. Um, it can. Can. It can have the opposite effect, and I've seen, I've seen that. So it's a it's a complex topic, and I think a lot of folks are working through that right now. I have seen in some cases 
uh, larger organizations actually hire an experienced ERG leader that is basically only doing that. Um, so that to make sure that it's beneficial to employees from a compliance standpoint, everything's kind of in place. Um, because it's it's a I think it's ultimately it's a it's a full time job. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, like a lot of companies are figuring out. So I appreciate your your insight there. Um, I I, uh, I loved this conversation. There's there's been so much value to the community. I wanted to say uh, thank you, Laura, for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. I forgot we're recording. Those are always my favorite episodes where we're just having a cool conversation. Mm-hmm. But you're welcome back anytime. We'd love to have you on for a round two sometime. Yeah, no, absolutely. This has been a blast. I agree with you. I can't believe it's already been an hour. Yeah, I know, right? It, it time flies. And, and for everybody tuning in, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We have some really exciting news coming up with some uh, really interesting partnerships that are going to be hosting on a recurring episode basis, uh, CEOs from category leading companies that are somehow tied to like hiring or people. Um, so that's going to be really fun. And we're continuing to elevate the show. Uh, our guest list is continue to, it, it's, it's stacked um, with, with a lot of people that you're going to want to hear from. So make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday with the release of a new episode. Um, well, hey, everyone, thanks for joining us and we'll we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.